Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. I'm your guest host, Melena. And I'm your host, Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys about the Porco family. So grab your iced coffee and let's get into it. In November of 2004, Joan and Peter Porco lived in Del Mar, New York in a two-story home, and at the time, Peter was working as an appellate court clerk, and Joan was working as a speech pathologist. By 2004, the two had been married for 30 years and had two sons, Jonathan and Christopher. On November 15, 2004, Peter did not show up for work, which was very unlike him, so a court officer was dispatched to their residence to do a welfare check, and when he got to their house, he saw Peter lying by the front door, laying in a pool of his own blood. It looked as if he had been brutally beaten, with the majority of the wounds being to his head. From the front door, the court officer could see there was a blood trail that led to the front door from the kitchen, the hallway, and up the stairs. It seemed as if he had been attacked upstairs and attempted to leave the home at some point and collapsed onto the floor. The officer immediately called the local police and they arrived at the family home and searched the house. They found Joan was lying in her bed, somehow still alive. She had been attacked as well, with most of the injuries once again being to her head, and part of her brain was actually exposed. But she was not only alive, but also conscious. I'm surprised that she is still conscious after all of that trauma that she just endured. It was definitely a shock to the detectives and the police as well that she was still somehow conscious. But it did give the detective a little bit of time to ask her some questions about what's going on. Because the likelihood of her surviving once they got her to the hospital was really slim. So Detective Christopher Bodish asked Joan who had attacked her. And she wasn't able to verbally communicate, but she was able to communicate through head nods and hand motions and through some noises. So she indicated to the detective that it was a family member that had attacked her and her husband. And when asked if it was one of her sons, Joan said yes. So they asked if it was Jonathan, their oldest, and she said no. And then when asked if it was Christopher, she shook her head yes. Detective Bodish was not the only one in the room at the time that Joan said yes to Christopher being the perpetrator. There were also paramedics that witnessed this statement as well. Joan was pretty immediately taken to the hospital right after she had given her statement to the officers and she went into emergency surgery as expected and then was placed into a medically induced coma. At this point, police started to investigate the home, the crime scene and possible suspects. So one of the first things that the police noticed was that the home alarm system had been smashed. The phone line for the house was cut and one of the window screens had been slashed. But nothing appeared to have been stolen from the home, and Joan and Peter's wallets were still at the home and did not look disturbed, and Joan was still wearing her jewelry, and all the electronics were still at the home. So police were pretty much able to rule out any sort of robbery, and so it became more personal at this point. The only thing that the detectives really found other than the trails of blood throughout the home was that there was a fireman's axe in the bedroom, and this was determined to have been the weapon that was used by the attacker. And it was discovered that this axe did belong to the Porco family and whoever had attacked them had just used what they had available to them. At this point, were they investigating Christopher 
did they have him in custody or so they did not have him in custody i think they at this point just had him on their back of their mind because they didn't have any sort of evidence at all other than the mother's confession and because the mother had been through such a traumatic experience and was probably not medically in the correct state of mind at the moment to really go just off of that they had not arrested christopher they hadn't looked into him at all to see if there was even an alibi at this point, it's still within the first day or so of the murder, and they're still looking for things. That would make sense. So when police investigated the blood trail, it seemed that Peter had suffered 16 strikes from the axe. And after being attacked, at some point in time, he got up and started going through his morning routine. So he started just getting ready for work. He left his bed, went to the bathroom... Went downstairs and started coffee in the kitchen, prepared his lunch, went out to get the newspaper, had started to unload the dishwasher. And then at some point in time, when he went to leave for the day, and police believe it was when he went to work, he ended up collapsing and passing away from his wounds. If I stub my toe, I need like a five minute break. I can't imagine being hit with an axe 16 times and then just being like, meh, let's go to work. I'm gonna go on a limb and assume that he was just in shock. I'm thinking that the attack most likely happened overnight, maybe while he was sleeping. Maybe he passed out at first, became unconscious again, woke up with no recollection and was just in so much shock that he didn't even feel pain and he just was like, Oh, it's typical day. I just get up and I go get ready for work and I leave. But also, I feel like that's some major commitment to your job. Maybe he was truly just in love with his job. The evening of November 15th, so the day that the crime scene was found, Christopher Porco ended up receiving a phone call from a Times Union reporter, and they were asking him to comment on the murder. And Chris was a 21-year-old college student at this point. He was attending the University of Rochester, which is about 230 miles from Del Mar. And at the point that he received the phone call, he had not yet been informed by police about the fact that his father had been murdered and his mother had been attacked. So Christopher calls the police to find out what's going on with his parents. And here is the audio for you guys of the phone call that Chris places to the police department at this time. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Porco. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information on me. Hey, Chris, what about you? I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay, you're at, in Rochester? Yes. Okay. Do you have a phone number there, Chris? Yeah, I sure do. Um, okay, and are, are you in a dorm there? Yes, I am. Okay. And you're hearing from the Times Union? Yeah, they called me and said my, my parents were found, um, I guess, I don't know, they didn't say how or anything. So, Milena, after hearing that audio, what are your kind of initial thoughts? The thing that was running through my mind the entire time was just that he was extremely calm for just finding out that his parents had died. And although he didn't hear it from the police, it was from, you know, an outside source. If someone told me that, I would freak out no matter who it was because I'd be worried. And I feel like he was just extremely calm about the whole situation instead of oh my gosh, my parents just died. He's just kind of like, hey, did my parents, are they actually dead? Or? Yes, everything that you just said is pretty much the exact thoughts that I had when I listened to it. It's a lot of 
emotionless words that he's saying. He's not really acting as if he even knows who was murdered or if he even really cares. There is a second call that occurs between him and the police later in the day. I'm not sure if the police called him back. That's kind of what I've gathered from it. So I'm going to play that for you guys real fast. When was the last time you said you came down to your parents? Uh, about three weeks ago. I, it was on the weekend. Um, I can't give you a day. I have to, I have to figure it out. I'm not really sure. Okay, but about three weeks ago? Yeah. Okay, and the email, what, what's going on with your email? You said you, um, you, you emailed him today, but you didn't get a, a response? Yeah, I, I emailed him this afternoon. Um, my dad at work. Okay. Um, about uh, college loan stuff. About what? College loan stuff. Oh, about college loans? Yeah. All right. Let me just, so you will be here probably, you're going to go right to Albany Med? I, I don't know. I don't even know where my mom is, but. Yeah, she is at Albany Med. Okay. Do you know her condition? No, because I haven't talked to her. Let me give you my pager number. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. All right, Melina, what are your thoughts on that call? It was the same thing. It was just emotionless on his part. And in the first part, I understand him being a little caught off guard because of the way that the situation was handled with him not being informed by the police. And he was just asking if that was true, whereas now he's had time to think about it. And now that he understands that his father is actually dead and that his mother is in critical condition in the hospital, I feel like he would definitely have more emotion behind it because personally I would if that were the case and I wouldn't just kind of be like "Eh, yeah I don't know where she's at will you tell me I'd be like oh my gosh tell me where my mother is right now I need to go see her one thing that I do want to point out with what occurred on this call I want you guys to pay attention to the fact that Chris said that he emailed his father that day at his work email regarding student loans because we're going to get into that in a minute a little bit further but I, I do feel like at this point, he should be showing a little bit more of emotion. A lot of times, Abby feels like I'm a little judgmental on the way that somebody responds to a situation. I know, Melena, you've not been on the episodes I'm referring to, but in the John Bonet Ramsey case and the mom calls 911, I went full into analyzing the 911 call and I went to this website and we looked into the way that the mother was when she called 911. And I've done that with other cases as well. And Abby feels like maybe we shouldn't judge based off of the way that somebody's acting, their emotions in that situation, because everybody responds differently. And there's other people out there that feel that exact same way, but I kind of feel like you do with the situation. I just know what Abby would say if she was here. But I do feel like in this situation specifically, it's your parents. You would expect a little bit more of emotion, a little bit more compassion, just a little bit more something. At this time, police had an APB out for Chris so that they could bring him in for questioning. Even though they were looking for Chris at this time after Joan had already indicated him as the attacker, they were still also looking at other leads. They weren't solely focused on Chris because they knew that there was a chance that it wasn't just him. So a tip came in that there was an unhappy litigant that Peter had worked with at his job. 
that was upset about the outcome of a custody case and he had apparently threatened Peter. So there was some suspicion about him and police looked into him, but his alibi checked out. And so he was pretty quickly crossed off the list and ruled out as a suspect. The second person that they looked at as a possible suspect would have been a man named Frank. And this was actually Peter's great uncle. So Frank had ties to the mob and he was known as the fireman. Detectives wondered if maybe Frank had threatened to talk to authorities and rat out some people with the mob and his associates had decided to send a message by killing Peter with a fireman's axe because his nickname was the fireman. But this theory was also crossed off the list pretty early on because they learned that Frank was currently incarcerated specifically because he refused to work with authorities and rat out anybody involved with the mob. He wouldn't talk. So while police were investigating Chris, they learned a couple things about him. They learned that Chris had pretty much been living a facade lately. He had been telling friends and classmates that he came from a very wealthy family, and he would talk about all these real estate holdings and vacation homes that his family had, none of which existed. And his friends would ask to see these homes or to go with him to visit these places, and Chris would always come up with different excuses and reasons about why they couldn't go with him. That definitely seems a wee bit suspicious. You would think that people would kind of catch on. I don't know if they started to or what. I also don't know why he felt like he needed to live up this facade, but he did. And it goes a lot further than lying to his friends about these imaginary homes. So Chris and his parents had had multiple disagreements and there was definitely some tension between each other when it came to finances. And the fact that Chris was known as a liar. He liked to lie to everyone and had always done this even since his childhood. So I'm going to go through and kind of list a couple of things that Chris did that just make him not look like such an amazing person. So it turns out Chris had taken out a loan for his tuition at Rochester, but he had used about $17,000 of it to finance a new Jeep Wrangler. Jeeps are cool and all, but I feel like if your loan is for college tuition, you should probably use it for your college tuition. But That's just a crazy thought. I know. Logic's weird. Yeah, I thought that you would like the fact that it was a Jeep. I didn't say it, but it was also a yellow Jeep that he got. Thought you'd like that as well. Now I'm extremely jealous. I take back everything I said. Totally do that. Okay. So that, I mean, honestly, not a great thing to do, but not looking too bad right now. But Chris was doing really bad in school, and this resulted in the university suspending him. He had started attending a community college because he wanted to still finish his education, but he still was not doing great with his classes, not doing great with his studies, and he was failing community college as well. He did manage to get readmitted to the University of Rochester in fall of 2004, but this was only after he forged transcripts from the community college to make it look like he was passing all of his classes. I'm taking notes so I know how to pass my classes. Well, okay. Then he went ahead and told his parents that the reason he was able to go back to the University of Rochester was because his professor at the university had misplaced his final exam from the previous year. And once it was found, it fixed all of his grades. And since the university had made a mistake, his tuition for the next year would be completely covered and he wouldn't have to pay for anything. That just makes my brain hurt. It's just he's getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the lies. Mm -hmm. And we're going to keep going with it because this isn't enough. 
So in order to keep up with the lie that the university was covering his tuition, he didn't have to pay for anything. He decided that he would just forge his father's signature on the loan documents for college. And so he took out these loans in his father's name. Well, he was also emailing his father about that stuff on the day that he was found dead. So Peter actually had no idea that Chris had taken these loans out in his name. Chris then opened a line of credit with the bank and forged his father's signature as a cosigner. So this is now the second time he's forged his father's signature. This time it was so that he could continue financing his Jeep Wrangler. His father had no idea about any of this and neither did his mother. On top of all of this credit fraud, all of this stuff, he was starting to steal things from people. So his roommate had his laptop stolen. And shortly after, Chris just so happened to have the exact same make and model of that computer. And then in the summer of 2003, Joan and Peter had computer and computer equipment and cameras stolen from their home. And they suspected Christopher was the one that had done this. Well, he just sounds like the best son in the world. Like someone needs to get him a mug that says, number one son. Yeah, he's he's really a stand-up kid at this point. I mean, stealing all this stuff from his parents. Lovely. Another not great thing that Chris was doing was that he was also scamming a bunch of people on eBay. So he would list the things that he had stolen from his parents, so the computers and the cameras, and he would list them on eBay for sale, and then he would collect the payment, and as soon as he collected the payment, disappeared like a ghost. And then people would email and be like, um, I didn't receive my items. It would be all these upset buyers that were trying to get in touch with him, like give me my money back or give me my product. What's going on? And anytime he received these emails, Chris would pretend to be his older brother, Jonathan. And so he would email back as Jonathan and say that Chris had died and that he didn't know where the items were and he didn't have the ability to refund the money. He couldn't have come up with a better lie. I don't I don't know. This is what he came up with. But it really pissed Jonathan off. Rightfully so. But Jonathan was a naval officer. And so his career could have been majorly impacted by this if the Navy found out that this was being done in Jonathan's name. So Jonathan had tried to call Chris about this many times, like hundreds of times. But Chris never called his brother back to discuss this. It sounds like there's a lot of family issues going on in this whole situation. Yeah, it's not seeming like the most tight-knit family situation, but this is kind of where it's at. It gets a little crazier, I guess. So about two weeks prior to the murder, Peter was notified that Chris had forged his signature for the loan and on the line of credit. Peter and Joan also found out that Chris had not paid his tuition but instead had bought a car. So both Peter and Joan had tried to call Chris to discuss this with him, try to talk to him, figure out what was going on, but he refused to return any of their calls. So Peter sent an email to Christopher and yelled at him about the fact that he'd been dishonest and told Chris if he did anything else similar to it, then Peter would have to file forgery affidavits with the bank. So at this point, it seemed like Peter wasn't going to do anything legally about all this money that Chris had taken out, which I think is really nice that he was just going to like let it go. Because if it was me, I definitely would have probably taken it to the police. But anyways, Peter was just like, don't do it again, basically. And Peter ended the email by saying that Chris was welcome in the home to resolve the matter and that they were disappointed in him, but he was still their son and they loved him and they cared about his future. 
So when Christopher says something in the phone call to the police about the fact that he was emailing his dad about loan stuff, part of me wonders if this is kind of what he was talking about, but if he was just playing it off as if it was just like normal loan stuff and not anything illegal, really. I feel like just saying loan stuff was definitely very broad and could have really meant anything, which as we are hearing from what you're saying, it already seems like that was slightly the truth. Yes. So with all of this knowledge, the police decided they should solely focus on Chris, which I think is probably a good choice at this point. Mm-hmm. So his alibi that he told police was that he'd been in Rochester at school and on the evening of November 14th, he was sleeping. And then on November 15th, he was walking when he received a phone call from the reporter at Times Union. But police weren't believing that necessarily. So they kind of played around with the timeline and realized that Chris could have left the university around 10.30 p.m., driven the three hours to his parents' house, attacked them, then drove the three hours back without anyone noticing and arrived back around 8.30 in the morning. And that gave him plenty of time. So police check surveillance footage at the college and they see a yellow Jeep leaving the university parking lot near the dorms around 10.30 on November 14th and then returning around 8.30 the next morning on November 15th. My dream car is a yellow Jeep. And the nice thing is that that's more of a rare color on a car. So everyone kind of knows who you are. But that's also the bad thing because everyone knows who you are. It's not a car that can blend in. So that was bad on his part. Yeah, kind of reminds me of our truck, the old red truck that had the blue light on the top and it was just a red truck. It was an older one. Everybody knew that when that car was being driven, it was a fugate. Like you just pretty much knew. So it was kind of interesting that you said that because I kind of thought the same thing. I was like, that's a very distinguishable car. So people are going to know that it's yours. So they had this surveillance footage at the university to kind of corroborate the story that Chris might have been the one that did it. But then they had some other things that kind of made Chris look really not great. So police discovered that the security alarm at the home, it had been smashed, yes, but it had been manually deactivated prior to being smashed, meaning that somebody put in the code to get into the house, but then smashed it. I'm assuming Christopher didn't understand that you can tell when security systems are deactivated. I think that he thought that if it was smashed, there would be no tracing it, I guess. But obviously he was inaccurate in thinking that. So the police had an even better timeline at this point, now knowing when the deactivation occurred. So it would be that Chris left Rochester around 1030, drove to his parents' house, deactivated the alarm at 214, attacked his parents, cut the phone line around 459 a.m., headed back to school and arrived at 830 a.m., and then police believed that Chris had just cut the screen on the window to make it look like a break-in. There was a plenty of time in that timeline between the 10.30 p.m. and the 8.30 a.m. timeline that made it so that he could do all of these things and make it there to deactivate the alarm by 2.14. Plenty of time to attack his parents. 
and do everything that he needed to do. Jonathan, Chris's older brother, was, like I said, in the U.S. Navy. So he was in South Carolina at this time. And he told police that only a few people knew the code for the alarm. And one of those people was Christopher. All of the evidence, all of the stuff that I just mentioned in the last 10 to 15 minutes, Chris was finally arrested for the murder of his father and the attempted murder of his mother. July of 2006 was when the trial took place. So this was almost two years after the murder, about a year and a half. During the trial, defense argued that the prosecution had no forensic evidence linking Chris to the crime, and that it was all circumstantial evidence. Defense also argued that whoever attacked Joan and Peter would have been really bloody, and no blood was found in his Jeep, and no bloody clothing of his was ever found. There were also no fingerprints found on the axe to try to compare or use DNA for. But the prosecution said, we've got these other things that I haven't already mentioned because we didn't have enough evidence on why Chris was the one that could have done it. So Chris's fraternity brothers testified that he was not asleep in the dorm lounge, as he had said that evening. Nobody saw him there that night. Is it possible that the reason why Christopher wasn't bloody was because he maybe took a shower at the house and he could have worn his clothes in that shower and they would have had plenty of time to dry on that three-hour drive back to the university? That's possible. I don't know if they investigated whether or not the shower had been used. It also, like I said, from the blood trail, looked like the father had been in the bathroom. I don't know if he tried to shower. So I don't know if it was something that they were really able to determine. Neighbors of the Porco family also testified that they saw a bright yellow Jeep in the Porco family driveway in the middle of the night and early morning of the 15th. Another thing going against Chris was that toll booth attendants that had been working the cash only lanes that night remembered a yellow Jeep coming through and they were shown a picture of Chris and they said that they believed that that was the driver of the vehicle. Even though they didn't have physical evidence, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that put Chris as the perpetrator. So he was charged with second degree murder and attempted murder. And he was sentenced to 50 years to life on each count. So he was sentenced with two life sentences to 50 years. And so he had to serve a minimum of 50 years in prison. During the verdict and the sentencing, Chris showed no reaction. He said nothing. It was as if nothing was happening. He was emotionless again. I have one more twist to add to the story, I guess. One more interesting thing. Remember his mother, Joan? Yes. After she came out of the medically induced coma, she had no recollection of the attack. And she had no recollection of telling police that Chris had been the attacker. So she stood by Chris throughout the entire investigation and throughout the trial, stating that her son was innocent. I understand motherly love and I feel that her coming out of the coma and not having recollection of that night is understandable just because she did endure a lot of head trauma, but I feel like it would be hard to still stand up and back up your son after all of that evidence points to him, especially with knowing that you did originally say that he was who attacked you and that was at the time that it had just happened and I feel like at that point in time she had just experienced the attack which I feel like that would be what she should have kind of followed as far as what she said instead of just kind of being like eh, well I don't remember it so it's fine I'll just back up my son 
I think that she felt like she needed to protect her son because police weren't giving any other chances to anything else. So that was what she chose to do. And she had no recollection of telling police. She had no recollection of anything. She felt like words were being put into her mouth. Like I said, Joan had obviously survived the attack, but she had lost a portion of her skull permanently and had lost her left eye in the attack. Joan had asked detectives to leave Chris alone and accused the police of not doing their jobs correctly. Joan had gotten $250,000 that was needed for bail when Chris was first arrested, and she actually bailed him out. And then she walked with him into the courtroom for his trial and spent six hours in the witness box defending Chris, denying any of his lies, denying anything that had ever happened that he'd done wrong, making him seem like this innocent boy. She also testified that she told police that about a month prior to the murder, she had seen a stranger in her driveway one time during the night and one time during the day, but she said that police never asked her any questions about it or followed up on it. Christopher is currently serving his sentence at the Clinton Correctional Facility, and he will not be eligible for parole until 2052. In 2012, Chris learned that there was a movie being made about him on Lifetime titled Romeo Killer, The Chris Porco Story. So he tried to file a temporary restraining order to pause the release, and it did pause the release for a little while because he argued that it was for commercial gain and it violated his civil rights. But this was eventually dismissed, and the movie was aired on March 23rd, 2013. So if you guys want to watch that movie, you can watch a movie about his story. Actors portray it. I didn't watch the movie because a lot of times these movies are not as accurate. But if you guys want to watch it, check it out. Did Christopher ever end up admitting to the murder or is he still kind of detached from the subject and his emotions in this? Still to this day, Christopher and his mother Joan say that he is innocent. His defense attorney still to this day also says that he's innocent and says that the wrong man is in prison. But everybody on the prosecution team still to this day states that he is the one that did it, even though they did not have any physical evidence. Let us know in the Instagram comments if you guys feel like Chris was innocent or if you feel like he was guilty, because you know I like to cover a lot of the wrongful convictions, so if you feel like this is a wrongful conviction, leave it in the comments. Give me some ideas of what you think could have happened. We always love to hear your guys' thoughts, so let us know what you guys think. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.